I, uh, I've got this call from my friends. They're telling me that we're going to be sitting outside of a, an allegedly haunted hunting lodge in the middle of nowhere, and we are going to be summoning a ghost. So, of course, I'm in. Hey, y'all. I'm Andrew, and this is The Snake's Paw. Officially, this show is made by Jack, Matthew, and me. We do most of the writing, edit, sound design, all that. But in any real way, it's a labor of love by a group of friends who have been making things together, stories, plays, etc., for a long time. And those friends are often the people whose voices you hear on the show. John, who you just heard, was in our series Marjorie and Houdini, and he also shared a story for our Kaidan episode, this series of campfire stories we did last Halloween. And this Halloween, I want to share with y'all the story of our original Kaidan. This idea of doing a round of campfire stories on the show came from an event, a real in-person, flesh-and-blood, gathered-around-a-fire-on-a-pot-of-gumbo event that happened many years ago, and which remains, for me at least, the greatest Halloween memory I have. As for what a kaidan is, I leave that to our friend Tyler, who you may also have heard in Marjorie and Houdini, and who has led us in a couple of basic pitches, and who conveniently lives in Japan and speaks Japanese. Officially, it's called Hyakumonogatari Kaidan Kai. Hyaku means a hundred. Monogatari are stories, so a hundred stories. Kaidan is sort of means strange tales. And Kai means to meet. So the meeting of a hundred strange tales. Hyakumonogatari Kaidan Kai. And we called it, you know, because we're the cool kids, a kaidan for short, uh, which is what it's also called in Japan, a kaidan. As for how we came across this concept? I think that it was Mafo who came up with the idea. I'm pretty sure he was the one who spearheaded the whole everybody come up with a hundred ghost stories because we want to do this Japanese seance thing we've heard about. That, of course, is Jack. And he's right. It was Mafo. Mafo is our nickname for Matthew. So... I first read about kaidans after watching a Japanese horror movie from the 50s. I was reading about the film, and something that I was reading mentioned the concept of the kaidan, of this parlor game that they played in Japan in like the late 1700s, early 1800s. And the notion of telling that many stories stuck in my head, and I think I brought it up to the group and it kind of snowballed into uh, a group activity. It was not a long time after we first heard of this idea of a night of 100 ghost stories that we decided we had to do it. And part of the appeal was the promise from the Japanese original. If you do it right, maybe, maybe after the 100th story, a ghost will appear. But there were rules. There were about 10 of us included in the plan, and we had about a year and if we all came up with 10 ghost stories over the course of the year, then at the end, when Halloween rolled around, we could all come together and we could tell our ghost stories. Yeah, we had to do the, it was like, we're going to do 100 ghost stories, but it has to happen before dawn. Mm -hmm. We knew we had to get to 100 stories overnight, because legally. That's Helen and James. They've been in a ton of our episodes, and they are the last new voices you'll hear. I went to all these people to ask them what they remember from the Kaidan because for this group, it is such a shared legend that it's just become a shorthand. It's just that time we told 100 ghost stories in the woods. 
It's great for a callback, but we don't actually talk about it very much, including the basic questions. Why were we doing it? Because it needed to be done. <laughs> what more reason do you need? I think we were at that... Why do we climb the mountains? Why do we sail the oceans? Come on, that's a dumb question. <laughs> What's your answer? No, no. I mean, but kind of like, I feel like we collectively would dream up these impossible projects and then just see if we could. Um, I don't know, we had this like wonderful bravado that wasn't, I don't know, that wasn't stuck up, but just like, yeah, look at these cool people around us. Like, this is an impossible thing. We can figure it out. Let's do it. It's about storytelling and sharing and community. Yeah. Yeah. Like everything. <laughs> it's all just a front for community. We all just want to see comfort in this dark, dark world. When Helen talks about impossible things, that was true at the level of projects like the Kaidan, but it was also true on the level of just life. Most of us were fresh out of college, and for years, we'd spend our summers together producing plays in this little town most of us are from. Really cool place. We could dream up whatever idea and put up flyers for auditions, and people would turn up and say, yeah, let's do it. So on the one hand, we'd been in school, this very structured thing, this life of deadlines and achievements and a sense of motion toward, theoretically, living the dream. And on the other hand, we're already living the dream. Making cool things with cool people in a cool place. There's just no money in it. So we kind of gave up on one impossible thing, building our lives around small-town community theater, and opted for a different impossible thing. We piled into an apartment in New Orleans, and we waited tables and managed grocery stores and did road construction. And in all the time that was left, we made things together. It was double time all the time, just Keep throwing yourself at stuff and see if you stick. So that question, can we do this, that was everywhere. And stories about impossible things we'd pulled off in the past, those were our proof that we were on the right track. And what better addition to that canon than a night of a hundred ghost stories? It just made sense. And all the more so on Halloween. There's something great about spoopy season and Halloween that like invites everyone to be theatrical and everyone to be a little bit over the top, which mm. is very nice. Um, and is really how we should operate all the time because <laughs> it's much more fun. But yeah, there's something about that that makes it, you know, more explainable. Like, well, what are you doing for Halloween? Oh, telling a hundred ghost stories overnight with my friends in the forest. Too old to trick or treat. What are you going to do? Uh. <laughs> of course, in a group like this one, there's usually a person who specializes in organizing the impossible tasks. The operations and the logistics, that is the masterwork of our friend James. And James is amazing. He's in professional theater today, stage production manager extraordinaire. You give him a Q-tip and a pocket knife and he'll build you a set. All I remember is we had a production meeting at the Barnes & Noble. What? Yeah, we had a planning meeting for the Kaidan at the Barnes & Noble on College Drive. Really? Yeah, I think you were there. I'm sure I was, but I don't like, remember that. In the either. like little terrible Starbucks area <laughs> with the bad biscotti. It wasn't just me who forgot about this. James was the only one who remembered it, which makes sense. He would have been the one who organized it. I asked him if he remembered any details. I I don't. I'm sure I have it in an email somewhere. <laughs> but uh... and he did. James found his notes from that meeting we had over the bad biscotti. We talked about practical stuff. How do we stay awake all night? According to the notes, specifically Roman numeral 1B, we thought maybe dance breaks. What do we eat and drink? We decided on a potluck, laid out a menu. 
We also talked about the more spiritual dimensions of the project. Roman numeral five was titled Ceremony. We agreed to ask Roby, our friend who happens to be a voodoo priest, how best to open the event. And what if a ghost did actually appear? That fell under Roman numeral six, titled Supernatural Occurrence. A. What is likely to happen? Conclusion? Unclear. B. What's the best way to deal with it? Conclusion? We should each meditate on this and have a personal goal. James also had our ongoing correspondence after the meeting, and the idea of the big finish, the hope that a ghost would appear, and ways to maximize our chances kept coming up. At the meeting, we emphasized that the stories needed to be about dead people. A note in bold read, no UFOs. John wrote in a follow-up email, it needs to be pointed out that ghosts don't like mint or garlic. So probably no gum chewing if it's mint, it would ruin the stories anyway, and no heavy garlic dishes for dinner. Jack wrote back, good point, John. For that matter, red pepper, coffee grinds, or any strong odors may keep spirits at bay. Roby, the friend who's a voodoo priest, wrote, Can y'all leave the keeping evil spirits away thing to me, please? So, the notes suggest we had our hopes pretty high about spirit summoning. But there was one place where we knew our limits. We had to tell a hundred stories, and there was absolutely no way we were going to be able to keep count. Jack had an idea. My idea was to come up with like a hundred things that we could throw into the fire so we'd have a basket of it and after everyone finishes telling their ghost story they pick it up and they throw it in the fire and I think the idea originally came from like a are you afraid of the dark style submitted for the approval of the Kaidan this story is everybody remembers these little things Jack made we differed on a few points I remember Jack Tied up a bunch of little baggies. Who made the sachets? Little pouches of cinnamon. Cinnamon and... Different amounts of different explosives in them. Other flammable, sparkly things. But in other ways, we were all on exactly the same page. A la, are you afraid of the dark? Ooh, are you afraid of the dark? That moment of like, shh. (sighs) And ah, this moment happens and the story's been told. Very, very nice touch. So if we're keeping score on what does or doesn't get remembered... There's a point each for cool noises, childhood pop culture references, and really elegant solutions to problems. Chemistry, not so much, but Jack remembers the details. So the 4th of July before the Kite on Halloween, I came across a whole bunch of really cheap fireworks. I took all of these fireworks and I broke them up and I I sawed out all of this gunpowder and I got a bunch of coffee filters, and I got some uh, coffee creamer and some other things, and I mixed them all together, and when I was done, I had all these, a, hundred, a basket with a hundred packets of an explosive material that probably would have gotten me put on a terrorist watch list if anyone saw it without the context, or maybe even with the context. But despite all logic and reason, it actually worked. When we took these packets and threw them into the fire, they made like a nice little... And I did a hundred of those and (laughs) had to count a few times to make sure that we had the right amount. But it it turned out great and nobody got their fingers blown off. Another challenge around preparing was, of course, finding a hundred ghost stories. Split between all of us, it was less daunting, but... We had to find ten people. We didn't have ten people when we started. We had to go recruiting. So we went about pitching the idea to friends. I remember us coming at this part of the work with almost a pyramid scheme kind of energy. Like, if you bring on someone else, then the number of stories you need to prep will go down, 
and your chances of seeing a ghost will go up. Simple math. And speaking of math, the stories also had to be brief. Because if each of the stories was roughly four or five minutes long, it's going to be eight hours of just us telling stories. That's assuming no breaks or conversation between or anything like that. On this subject of timing, James emailed us some good news. He wrote, The sun is scheduled to set at 6.18 that evening and not rise again for a full 13 hours at 6.18 a.m. That's right, we get an extra hour. At 2.59 a.m. that night, the time will magically become 2 a.m. again, and we will relive the hour of 2 a.m. November 1st. Time travel could be great for spirits. So the wind was at our back in a way. Still, the event was going to be a marathon, and the training for the marathon was finding and preparing stories. There were 10 stories each. 10 stories is a lot to come up with cold. And I feel like all of us were like, they have to be good, you know? We had a certain standard of quality, and like, I didn't want to just tell the Myrtle stories, which everybody Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What James just said there, that he didn't want to tell the Myrtle's stories. He's talking about a very unusual hurdle we faced when it came to story selection. Because... We were kind of ghost story pros. That's not me bragging. The little town we're from, St. Francisville, Louisiana, didn't offer a lot of ways to make a living, but one of them was ghost stories. St. Francisville is a tourist destination. We've got all these old houses, including the Myrtles Plantation, which, according to some sources, like its website, is the most haunted house in America. I grew up a few minutes' walk from that place, and... Fully half of us attending the Kaidan had worked there at some point, showing people around, giving under-the-table nighttime cemetery tours, but mainly telling ghost stories. That was the gig. So, like any group of friends, we had a shared corpus of stories. Ours just leaned heavy on ghost stories. And it was added labor to reach outside of it. The kind of labor we loved, but again, that question. Can we do this? So, I remember doing an extensive amount of research, probably far more than it merited. And I remember, like, to this day, I remember things that I read about, but that I wasn't even able to use, just because it didn't constitute a story. Like, I'd find, like, an interesting detail. But my favorite thing was it's a Japanese ghost. It's, like, people who drown in, like, Japanese folklore. They will come up to your boat, and they'll ask you for a ladle, and they'll just keep bugging you for a ladle. And if you give them a ladle, they'll just start ladling water into your boat until they swamp it and you also drown. Oh, no. oh. <laughs> Which is just the most <laughs> passive-aggressive sort of ghost. <laughs> I mean, and it's funny. I think at the time I would have completely considered that a non-story. I hear that now and I'm like, that's a story. That's enough. <laughs> I did not think that was enough at the time. Here's what I remember about preparing. I was dabbling on the cello at the time. I had a rented instrument and I was trying to justify continuing to pay for it on my paltry income. So I decided my stories were going to be songs, solo cello and voice. Write an album's worth of music on the side over the course of a year. Aim high and you won't shoot yourself in the foot, right? You might just watch as your arrow comes back down and hits you in the face. I'm exaggerating. I finished a few, and it was a nice last dance with the cello, but I did not make it to 10 stories that way. And I was not the only one who erred on the side of too much. In the pile of records James turned up, 
There was a conversation between him and one of our other guests who was nervous about preparing enough. James responded with his philosophy at the time for getting it all done. He said, I like to just run as fast as I can. Break through the wall that tells you not to sprint or that tells you it's hard or that it looks silly. Push as far as I can until I can't feel a thing. The last hurdle we had to figure out was where to do this thing. We were planning out a place where we could have privacy, but that we still had like some form of legal access to because we didn't want to be interrupted. You know, you can't tell 80 ghost stories and then the authorities arrive, you have to break up your party. We didn't want to do someone's like backyard. That was a bit too civilized. <laughs> and so we wanted some place that was close to the wilderness. The venue chosen was my great grandmother's land in rural Mississippi, in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by fields, probably 30, 40 years ago, picturesque, provincial, beautiful country scene. And in modern times, thanks to years of my family's neglect, is the perfect setting for a horror movie. The house is all but decaying. It's still standing. There, there is running water and electricity, but it's something that um, you kind of only go in if you have to go in sort of situation. His grandmother, great-grandmother, I'm not sure, had clearly died 15 to 20 to 30 years before, and nobody had been living there, nobody had taken care of it. It was essentially just an abandoned house. Um, we had stayed there one night on a camping trip, and it was full of, like, old falling-apart furniture, just covered in rat shit, and a bunch of, like, dirty dishes, and a very, like, bleeding-heart Catholic painting of the Virgin Mary. There was a book of surgical nursing underneath a really old broken down, just dilapidated, rotted couch. I don't know why I was looking under there. I don't know what would have possessed me to put my hand under it, but I found this book and I actually still have that book. And then around the building was just uh, woods. It was really isolated. There were no other houses nearby. There are cows, of course, and, and quiet horses, which, you know, with their big glassy black eyes are just spooky and silent. And in this field, there is also a old abandoned school bus. I don't know how the hell we got it. That is used to store hay for the horses and the cows. Me and Maffo went out and explored the property a little bit. And I remember this school bus that had a tree growing through the engine and that same imagery has made its way into my stories since then. But me and Maffo were alone and we came across this landmark and we thought it was really cool. And I remember distinctly that we turned around to go back and there was just this very strange looking wild horse walking out of the woods. And then eventually a bunch of other horses came out of the woods and joined him. And me and Maffo, we weren't going to take any chances. So we climbed on top of the school bus and we just thought, okay, we'll just wait him out. And it was just like this super creepy waiting for these lethargic zombie horses to eventually get bored and walk away and leave us alone. And they did. But for a period there, we thought it was very realistic that we might end up getting killed by wild horses. I kind of like it. It's quiet. It's like shitty, but it was quiet and nice. <laughs> I don't know. It's my vibe. So it was kind of ideal for our purposes because we had access to it and we wouldn't be bothered. And it felt kind of like on the edge of civilization. Anyway, all that to say, 
we ended up picking that spot, that field, next to the abandoned school bus to do the kaidon. Like the kaidon in general, the site was both perfect and impossible. You couldn't ask for a better mood, but it wasn't very hospitable. And fixing that impossibility also fell to James. Remember what Tyler said earlier? You give him a Q-tip and a pocket knife and he'll build you a set. James had done that magic in fields and front porches and trailers before. This was no different. But there's math behind it. There's a saying in theater that everyone wants to make shows cheap, fast, and well. But at best, you get two out of three. Cheap was a must. There was no budget for this thing. And of course, you always want things to be good. So the fuel in the fire ends up being lots and lots of time. It was almost an hour drive to the location from my house. I remember doing it a lot and thinking, man, I'm losing a lot of gas money on this. Because <laughs> obviously there was no, wasn't, nobody was making any money on this. So I think I took care of, I know I got firewood. <laughs> I distinctly remember I went to Wayne Tanner's father. I can't remember his first name, but Wayne Tanner's father. And I said, can I buy a cord of firewood from you and he said a cord you know how much that is boy and i was like well i just need enough to burn for like 12 hours for one night and he was like all right i'll take care of you and i was like what do i owe you for that and he was like you're you're in the theater right and i was like yeah and he was like all right well when you make it to broadway you give me tickets to one of those shows <laughs> so i still owe him that <laughs> if i ever make it to broadway i gotta go find wayne tanner's father and bring him to a broadway show this was all in the lead up to the big day James also mowed and took care of the site in a bunch of other ways. And he did all that work for an event he wouldn't even be able to enjoy in its entirety. Because it was on Halloween and James was working, still working at the Myrtles. Halloween was a big night there because they just did a lot of volume. And it was traditional for the owners to tip us out like an extra hundred bucks. Plus, we usually made good tips on top of it. Like it was a good night to work. I would wear a tux for some reason. I don't know why. So I had to work that night, and that meant I was giving tours constantly from probably 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. or so. So I had to drive out after that. So I want to underline this. James is going to be late for our ghost story gathering because he's getting paid to tell ghost stories somewhere else. So he goes in the morning to prep the site, and then he leaves just as the rest of us are on our way there coordinating the ends of our work days and who has a car and then doing the three or four or five hour trip from our various homes. John traveled the furthest and with the least familiarity. Now making my drive from Houston that I come up through Baton Rouge and I turn north and right as I'm getting out of Baton Rouge, the sun is starting to set. So by the time I'm getting outside of St. Francisville, it's what I've heard referred to as the gloaming, which is the sky still has a certain amount of light in it, but the land is dark. And of course, I'm going up through these trees and the road is winding, and I definitely did not have GPS on my phone. You drive like you're going to go to Pond and Tunica Hills, and then you just keep going till you're like, shit, I must be in Wovell by now. And then it's there on the right, uh, just around the bend. <laughs> so that's how you get there. So I'm driving and it is wooded on all sides. And of course I love this, but I realize that I am truly in an area that if I needed to get out of it, I would not be able to get out of it fast. 
and I'm almost to the cabin and I come around this corner and there's a man standing in the road and he's holding this huge bow and arrow. And of course I slam on my brakes and we make eye contact and he just walks back into the woods. It was at that moment that I realized I was no longer in Kansas, so to speak. So we get there and James has it all laid out. There is an extension cord running from the house and an entire buffet set up. Yes, of course, because we're from Louisiana, there is gumbo that is bubbling. There was a a crock pot with apple cider. Chili and hot chocolate and coffee. All laid out for everyone because this is going to be an all-nighter. The Kaidan is not a couple people around a fire for two hours. No, it's a hundred stories. So we got to go from sunset to sunrise. So James had done all of this. The rest of us brought the food as we arrived, but everything else was his doing. Even decorated a little bit. Hanging in one of the trees near the spot was a skeleton draped in white cloth. And all that firewood that James had bartered for and transported was stacked and ready for us to build the bonfire. We had to build the fire on a particular spot. He had like set a cross where we were supposed to build the fire for reasons that he did not disclose initially. So Mafo gets the fire built. He and James are the Eagle Scouts of the bunch. And as it rises, the sun sets and the vibe is complete. You'd think we're in the middle of nowhere. It is pitch dark. You would think, like, fucking terrifying. And somehow it, I like, I have no memory of fear. So in a way, because we arrived to see all this stuff James had done, but not James himself, we had a ghost around the fire before a single story had been told. And not just because of the comforts he set up for us. For James, being double booked was just another logistical impossibility to be overcome. And as we started going around the fire and telling stories, James even in his absence, still took his turn. There was some rudimentary instructions when it was your turn to go. I think there is, I'm sure there's a technical term, a set of buttons, whatever the theater people use. It's all there and you like press, I swear it was like, press this button for story one, press this button for story two, press this button for story three. And so we pressed it. And we started hearing James's booming voice like rolling over the field. He had apparently gone and buried speakers out in the woods. And I believe the story was about a group of children who were on a field trip. And there is a disaster that happens. And their bus ends up falling off a cliff. And I think they all die. And, and James, in his deep voice, says, But in the Mississippi hills at night, when it's quiet, and you stop around that ravine and listen, you can still hear the last screams of the children as they fell to their death. <laughs> and this lightning flashing sound happens. I guess it's thunder, thunder, thunder flashing sounds happen. And in that moment, the school bus that no one had noticed in the distance comes to life. These strobe lights and the screaming sounds of the kids. And we all, of course, scream in shock uh, I think someone pisses himself and said they spilled cocoa. Um, and it is that that beautiful intersection of fear followed by immediate surprise and delight. Let's rewind a little. Back to the morning when James is by himself on the site setting up for the rest of us. 
I knew I was going to like make them theatrical because that's just what I do. But yeah, I couldn't be there for the first several hours. So I decided I had to automate them. But I didn't know how to automate things at the time. <laughs> I didn't have like computers. Well, I had one computer, but it was very rudimentary and I didn't have a lot of equipment. So I automated my first one or two stories. And I forget what the control you guys had was. It was the computer. You guys turned on the computer. And so I had that and I had a tape deck like a physical cassette tape deck. And I had a couple of DMX dimmers. So when you guys press the, the space bar, or the go button or whatever it was, it turned on a, a channel that was the DMX dimmer that gave the tape deck power. And then the tape deck would start spinning and play the tape. And then whatever lighting effects or other tricks I had were pre-programmed to happen at a certain time based on the tape. But they weren't actually connected. You know, if the tape played a little slower or faster, the effect would just be at the wrong time. Um, so it was just like, oh, hope this works. And I kind of had to like, it was like baiting a trap. Because I had to like set it all and just leave for like many hours before you guys were arriving. So I just set it up, left my laptop in the woods near a road and hoped for the best. And the best happened. Because all these years later, when we tell this story, this is what this part of it sounds like. He had hidden speakers inside of the bus, hidden lights inside of the bus. Hidden extension cords, had strobe lights and everything timed perfectly. So much to our surprise, because we didn't know there were going to be special effects for this production, suddenly the bus starts lighting up and there are children screaming. I'm sure it freaked a couple of us out. <laughs> it was the coolest thing ever. It was just amazing. James did so well. And it was amazing. And like when it finally finished, I was just like, oh man, my stories are going to suck compared to that. <laughs> There's one other story from the night that we remember in that same kind of vivid detail. And it was another one by James. At the end of his workday, after leading many tours through this haunted house and probably telling a hundred ghost stories on his own, if you count repeats, James drove out, I think still in his tux, and joined us. By then, it was probably past midnight. We'd been around the circle several times telling stories, tossing little powder packs in the fire. And James joins us, not even having gotten to see his special effects in action. We all gush for a bit, and then James offers to tell us one live. And let me say, none of us, James included, could remember what this story was about. So Tyler's version is as good as any. So I, I don't remember all the details, um, but I believe it was about a woman in love who's going to get married. And I think her husband, fiance, stands her up at the altar. And she is very upset, very depressed. And um, what I remember at least is that she hangs herself and, uh, and nobody knew. And one day they go into the attic and all that there is, is her limp skeleton shrouded in her tattered wedding dress. Or maybe that's not right. Either she hung herself, or maybe she burnt herself in her wedding dress. Either way, at this moment, as James talks about the skeleton and the wedding dress, he pulls a rope, and out of nowhere, over a pulley, comes down this skeleton in a wedding dress, careening towards the fire that we had been feeding. The skeleton James hung in the tree as decoration was a set piece all along, took us totally by surprise. But now that we know what he's doing, as it happens, we're deducing. This 
figure was rigged to like zip line down and crash into the flames and burn up as kind of like the button. And the mood is so good and eerie. And James had planned so perfectly. He'd put the X where you're supposed to build the fire. That's why that was there. So it would fall exactly in the spot where it's supposed to fall. And as we see this happening, the skeleton moves towards the fire to burst into flames, but falls about five feet short. And there's a moment where finishing his story, James just picks up the limp body of the skeleton and tosses it into the fire, saying something like, and then she burnt away and the wedding dress flames. And then, of course, the skeleton and the wedding dress burst into flames. Um, and there is a moment of pause among everybody there as our minds are trying to catch up with what's happened and the amazing theatrics of it all. And then I, being, I guess, the evil spirit that I am, crack up. Cackle is probably the more appropriate word. Tyler, who's not prone to shame, <laughs> Tyler said, Tyler was doubled over laughing, and he was like, Oh my god, James, that was amazing, and it didn't work! Oh. <laughs> he put so much effort into this, and it was ruined. <laughs> Think of all the time and planning and the fucking skeleton fell five feet before I don't know if I've ever seen him laugh as hard as he did that night. And then I guess I gave everybody else permission to laugh and laugh at the fact that I was laughing at it. Just the planning and everything was so perfect, but the comedy that ensued and him having to pick up the skeleton and throw it into the fire himself to complete the story. That's what he was laughing at. He was laughing at my shame, which was fantastic. I was happy to be laughed at in my moment. It was excellent. It was excellent. It's definitely one of my favorite memories. Uh, that was one of the greatest moments of the entire night. So that is the part of the night everyone remembers. Two stories. Two percent of the night's performance. And just like we don't remember those stories perfectly, the other stuff isn't totally gone. Just mostly I had 10 stories prepared, and God, if I can remember five of them, it'll be a miracle. I have no memory whatsoever of the stories that I... I mean, like, usually, because, like, I grew up on the border, like, I always bring a La Llorona story and maybe some, like, spooky chupacabra stuff. Like, mm. I'm sure that was part of it. But no, I can't... I can't no. remember at all. I guess if memory is the point, then the lesson is don't put the thing you want remembered next to 99 other things like it. Or offer it up to sleep-deprived minds just once and never do anything with it again. That said, I dimly remember Helen's La Llorona story. And I remember another one of our friends told a three-minute version of a 700-page experimental novel. And that's about it. Considering that casualty rate, I was really satisfied to hear that one of my stories made the memory cut for someone. Last minute, when it was clear I wasn't going to get ten stories out of my cello alone... I wrote down a really simple story on sheets of paper in big, bold marker, one sentence per page. I brought along a drum in addition to the cello, and when it was my turn, I asked somebody to drum for me. John, who I'd barely met before, volunteered. And while he drummed, I sang a song, one I didn't write. It just had the right mood. And Jack remembered it. So one of the stories was told in the form of a song while someone played drums and someone else took the story that was written on sheets of paper and threw them into the fire so everyone could read one line of the story before it was burned up and then 
uh, gone forever, um, lasting only in our memories, which are obviously very fragile. I don't remember if we actually made it to 100 stories. I do remember towards the end of the night, everyone was kind of flagging and petering out. Eventually, it's almost you get into this entirely different headspace. It's almost like meditation, where like you're running on a different form of time. Time seemed to almost stopped existing. There are at least three or four hours there in like the early morning, like approaching dawn, but before you could really see any light. Whereas, like, is the night ever going to end? Have we, like, entered into another dimension? I remember when the sun rose, we were almost to 100. We had gotten very close, and the only way we had to know is how many sachets we had left. Mm -hmm. I have this very distinct memory, like, we still had, yeah. I don't know, a handful, maybe like 10 or something. Of the and, sachets. Of the sachets, yeah. And um, so I remember us doing, like, two were like the shortest ghost stories of all time mm -hmm. yeah for some reason in my mind it's very cinematic like horizon to horizon sunrise and like we're rushing to like finish because like the idea is right like you've got to tell the hundred ghost stories by the end of the night to have the ghost appear and like the last couple ones were like as this like phew, like the sun like hits the the skyline and we like like it's all of us and there's like you know music playing and we're all watching the sunrise and like waiting for the ghost but like we've you know we've done it we've made it and you had this feeling of being a little bit stiff very tired but also feeling accomplished in a weird way i guess knowing that we had done something that maybe no one had ever done certainly none no one had attempted to do it since you know edo era japan and feeling accomplished is all well and good, but we were promised a ghost. And sure. It's somewhat absurd to expect a ghost to manifest just because you told a hundred ghost stories. Because you ladled so much water into its boat and it's <laughs> like, not get the fuck off. <laughs> exactly. Still, though, if there's a way to summon a ghost, surely reviving an ancient-ish, long-dead ritual from the opposite side of the world is a pretty strong goodwill gesture. Assuming we did everything right. I did not do everything right. I fell asleep. So I might have missed a ghost if it appeared. And then there's the fact that we weren't done by sunrise. Also possible that the ghosts were afraid Tyler was going to laugh at them. Or maybe they heard James's voice booming out of the woods and they were like, no way I can top that. Also, Part of me wonders, because we told 100 stories, there were at least a few that might not qualify as ghost stories, per se. Like, maybe we just didn't meet their requirements. But I do love, like, of all the ways to invoke a ghost, telling 100 ghost stories must be both the silliest and the most time-consuming way possible. And I remember at the end, it was like, we have to go, we got to put this fire out. And we dumped water on it. This was like, I think just Roby and I were there at this point. Maybe you guys had left already. And when we dumped water on it, of course, there's this big plume of steam and smoke. And Roby said, there's our ghost. <laughs> we got to go back and do it again, though. I want to make it work right. Yeah. Oh, I could only imagine what you would create now. Yeah, Given the tools now. and the toys have you have now. Fucking storage unit. Come yeah, on. yeah. It would be wild. Thank y'all for listening. This episode is kind of different from a lot of what we do, so... Let us know what you think. The voices you heard belonged to John Angelo Cassaro, Tyler DeQuilla, Jack Townsend, Matthew Morris, Helen Jacks, James Lanius, and me, Andrew Ferrier. 
You can find us at all the usual places, podcast, YouTube, Instagram, listeningspa.com, and Ko-Fi, where you can support the show. And for those of you who do that, one, thank you. Without going into too much detail, now more than usual, you're making some things possible. And two, we've got a little extra there from this episode. Tyler sharing some more of the illustrious history of the house in Mississippi. And to all of you, thanks for being here. Happy Halloween.